All right, welcome back. Hey, all you crazy sci-fi and fantasy fans. It's time for your daily dose of shenanigans over here at the Blasters and Blades podcast. Just three nerdy veterans geeking out over our science fiction passions and fantastical fantasies. A place where magic is king, the sky is the limit, and space is the place. So without further ado, we will introduce you to the award-winning, award-nominated, all-around phenomenal author who is a legend in his own right, Mr. Richard Fox. So how are <laughs> you doing today, sir? Thank you. I appreciate the very generous introduction. <laughs> so can you uh, tell your, us a little bit about yourself or anyone living under a rock and doesn't know who you are in the world of sure. military science fiction? Sure. My name is Richard Fox. I predominantly write uh, military science fiction, uh, best known for the Ember War saga, which is pushing almost 30 books total in the entire uh, the entire universe there. And then I've also uh, written the Exiled Fleet series. And upcoming, I have a, a new series co-written with David Weber called Ascent to Empire. The first book called Governor will be out on June 1st. And then I have a new series called uh, The Tear, which opens up at the end of June. So there's a lot, lot, lot more coming for me from me in June. Are they going to be with the same um, acclaimed narrator, Luke Daniels? No. Um, the Tear will be narrated by R.C. Uh, Bray, who's best known for the uh, uh, narrating The Martian and narrating a lot of other uh, really best-selling audio titles. So can't go wrong picking that one up. And the narrator for uh, uh, Governor, I I don't know. I think that's, that, that news is still coming up. Maybe the Ember War spoiled me because when I think Richard Fox, I think Luke Daniels is the narrator. So yeah. even when I when I read it to myself, if I'm not listening to the audiobook, I picture his his voice in my head reading it. So. It's, you know, sometimes I do that, too. Almost anything I'm, I'm reading, I just switch to Luke's voice when I hear it. So. All right. And so the uh, the next part of the introduction, dear listeners, how we first found them. So I actually first became aware of Richard Fox when my series, The Sleeping Legion, was picked up by Podium um, for the audiobook rights. And they were trying to sell me on how great they were with military veterans and military sci-fi. So they gave me the first two um, bundles because the first two Ember Wars books Book one and two was one and two and or three and four were another audiobook. That was back when the market wanted shorter books. And they gave them to me for free and I was hooked. So then of course I went and bought all of them, um, paid cash for them because I didn't know audible subscriptions were a thing. I slept on the couch for a week and he spent it all frivolously, I'm sure. Absolutely. Um, and then uh, and then I reached out to say, you know, I, who are these podium people? Are they good people? And uh, and we went from there. But that's so I met them because of podium. So I suppose you know, they got their own back because not only did they sign me, they got my money for the books of yours. <laughs> They're like crack dealers like that. You know what? And I appreciate having them on my, on my side. In that regard. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, and I've talked to you about that before and you never feel remorse about taking all my money. Absolutely none. No. So was it uh, Whataburger, In-N-Out Burger? What's the, uh, what was the, the verdict on what you spent it on? Uh, probably uh, McDonald's. Uh, for whatever reason, I love McDonald's burrito, breakfast burritos. They they do. It right, there we go. That that that's acceptable. So now, sir, because it's been a while since we've had you on the show, we get to ask the religion question. So, Star Wars, Star Trek, or Firefly? Yeah, I'm going to go agnostic on this one. It, you know, I used to be of the faith, but over the past few years, I've been very trying, trying times for my belief system. It's almost like we need a new Nicene Council for Star Wars. Wouldn't that be nice? I know who I put on it. So, uh, if you didn't have, if it wasn't those three, what would be your current uh, sci-fi love then? Warhammer Forty Thousand for sure. 
Okay, do you have a favorite favorite faction? Uh, ooh, yeah, I, I tell you, I, I do enjoy um, Dark Angels, but then okay. lately I've been putting a lot of time and effort into uh, Death Watch. So do you actually paint the miniatures, or you just glue I, them together and play? Well, I, I have the miniatures, and at some point I will actually paint them. So uh, just like everyone else with miniatures. The only one I've actually there well, there's a couple authors I've seen paint them, but the only one I've seen where they looked phenomenal was Larry Correa's. I was that guy, to, like, he's got he some could, good. He could make that a career. Yeah, just painting those. Of course, his readers would be very upset if he did that, and they'd probably hunt me down for for even suggesting it. Um, and so because we recognize the polytheism of the speculative fiction universe, Game of Thrones, Lord of the Rings, or the Potterverse? Yeah, I, I'm still going to remain agnostic for, for those three. It's, really? I, I it, thought it, for it, sure you'd go for Lord I, of the Rings. I had hopes that Game of Thrones would correct itself when the books came, when the, the new novels came out, but I don't, I, I'm kind of losing hope that's going to happen. Lord of the Rings, you know, it's um, was enjoyable, but it's complete now. I don't see how much more there is to it. However, Amazon has spent a half billion dollars for a Lord of the Rings TV show, and I'm I'm curious to see how that'll go. And I just hope know, they don't screw it up. That's the, that is the big hope I think everyone has, and uh, I don't know how much hope I have in that. But we'll, I mean, if it doesn't suck, I'll be very happy. So, yeah, for me. The Potterverse, I mean, I was getting ready for my first deployment when I even knew that was a thing and people were reading it. And by then I wasn't the target audience. Uh, and Game of Thrones, like, I just knew that there was no ending. And I'm, I like an ending of a story. So I, I knew I'd be really upset if I started it and didn't get one. So I, I was just waiting for the series to finish because of the gaps. And I, like you said, I don't think that's going to happen. Um, but I, I do enjoy Lord of the Rings, so that's that's kind of iconic. And I'm not sure that there are any other universes in in fantasy that are as iconic as like the Star Wars, Star Trek, Firefly kind of thing. No, not when it comes um, to, to you know TV shows and whatnot. But book wise, you know, Dragonlance always that that holds a special place in my heart. You know, we might add that to the list. Yeah. Um, well, I, the ones we picked were were both books and and movies, so that way we got a wider. Um, exposure from potential guests but but yeah i'm gonna have to add Dragonlance because i did read those oh yeah so, me too. if they offered you a chance tomorrow to write a Dragonlance book would you i think i would take that yeah okay uh and because we here at the blasters and blades podcast love, love both the fantastical and the scientific what was your first love sci-fi or fantasy i'm gonna go with sci-fi yeah was there any one story that got you in the beginning uh, well, I tell you, one of my earliest memories when I'm about a year and a half old at, and my mother took me to go see Star Wars back when it was re-released in 79. So, so really, I remember, it was kind of downhill for me from there after I saw, you know, me, a toddler, holding on to the front, the, the movie seat in front of me watching the X-Wings and TIE Fighters fight. Yeah, it was, uh, I was hooked from there. I don't think I remember anything that far back. That's yeah, crazy. It's kind of, it's, it, apparently, that's unusual for people to remember stuff that far back. So it's either a good or a bad sign for me. I'm not sure. So do you think you actually physically remember it, or you've heard yeah, the story so yeah. many times that you visualize no, no. it? No, I remember it. Yeah. Okay. So what is it about science fiction that you love? Yeah, it, it's the possibilities because you can tell any kind of a story with science fiction, and science fiction is just just it's like seasoning that can make any story better. I mean, you can imagine having two neighbors. You know, in a you know, falling in love with each other, but if you have them 
in a spaceship, you know, going across the across the galaxy. And not only do you have the the, the, the drama of their relationship, but now you can throw in wayward robots and uh, space aliens attacking and the ship breaking down. So science fiction just makes everything better. Okay. So how did your love of science fiction transition uh, transition into you writing stories in it? Uh, I re- when I started writing, the first thing I like novel wise I ever wrote was uh, military thrillers, which I was relying heavily on my my military experience for that. And I didn't have a whole lot of success selling those books. And then uh, a very kind uh, writer named Russell Blake mentored me, and he he I, I brought my concerns to him. He said, "Well, have you considered writing in a, a different genre?" And then I thought to myself, "Well, you know, I've I've loved Star Wars since before I could walk." Maybe I should give that a try. And that became the Ember War. And that worked out a lot better than the military thrillers. Okay. So uh, many authors let their real life experiences influence the stories they tell. So were there any specific formidable moments for you that shape you as a storyteller? Well, I did uh, I did two 15-month-long tours in Iraq, combat tours in Iraq when I was in the Army. And then I also served as a military intelligence officer for, for many years uh, during and after that. So a lot of that does get put into uh, the books. So more, just the experience and feelings that I, I had while I was deployed, um, you know, I was able to put those into the stories where the characters are having the same worries, the same kind of you know the, the mental fortitude that they have to develop to get through that sort of situation. So yeah, it definitely you know, all that past became prologue for my career as a writer. Okay. So speaking of the military, your bio mentions that you served in the U.S. Army. Um, so we ask all of our military veterans this question, but how do you feel like your time in the big green weenie affects the stories you tell? Yeah, it's a lot of the the angst and consternation that I felt towards the Army while I was in uh, does come out. Because if, you know, if you're in the Army or any, any branch of the military, the, the concept of hurry up and wait is a, a real thing. And so that kind of also gets put into the book where oh, we have to get ready we're ready and now we're just waiting sitting around you know it's like the you have uh ex, your, your pt your physical training ex, uh, begins at 6 a.m well that means you know the next lower level has it wants everyone there half an hour early and the next the lower end of that wants everyone there half hour early so basically your, your privates end up having to be there at 4 30 for the six o'clock formation so you know some of the the more absurd parts of the military also get worked into my books just because it's easy. <laughs> there's, there's so much material there. Yeah. So do you ever draw on people that you knew when you were in the military, changing their names or otherwise? Uh, sometimes it's more the archetype. Uh, like there's one very popular character in, in, in the Ember Wars. His name is Standish. And Standish, he, he's a good guy at heart, but he's also uh, he'll be a criminal for as, for as, long, as much as he can, he can possibly get away with. And there was, I remember one time, uh, my security detail, we were guarding this hotel. And as we were about to leave, uh, some of my, some junior soldiers noticed that an Air Force truck had a, uh, a cooler in the back, unsecured. And they decided to uh, dynamically reacquisition this cooler and put it in the back of their truck. And I saw them, I yelled at them, go put it back. And then I, I then... I guess they thought I wasn't paying attention because they went and tried to get it again. And then I got a little bit more lieutenant on them and then brought in the NCOs to you know try to do some correct training here. But, you know, it's, you know, that, that sort of 
awareness of what you can get away with uh, while in a combat environment, you know, you kind of comes back to Standish. And Standish is the, he's a great character. He tends to pop up all the time, even when I don't don't anticipate him being there. And it's uh, but I noticed that with Standish, whenever he shows up, he just makes the story so much better. So I don't mind it. So first off, just for the listeners who didn't serve in the military or don't understand, the reason the NCOs, when he ordered them to go discipline them, were disciplining them, not because they were stealing the cooler or borrowing it or reacquiring it. It was because they got caught. Yeah, that was from the NCO angle, because when we had to when I had to do that as a sergeant, I wasn't mad that they tried to acquire extra equipment for us. I was mad if they got caught. Yeah. And later on, you know, during that deployment, I was the one who said, hey, no one signed for this stuff. Go get the truck. And then that's how how my my squadron headquarters ended up with a lot of furniture and a copy machine. So nice. So we um, we had that problem, too. And we learned the hard way uh, because our first patrol was to uh, to a Marine base. And they have this saying gear adrift is a gift. Mm-hmm. So they they try to take our tow bars because in the army we used we left our tow bars combat mounted and just held in place with ratchet straps. Mm-hmm. We thought that was secure. The Marines had other opinions and they liberated them, and mm-hmm. so so in, ensued some shenanigans. But that's when we realized that sometimes you just gotta take what you need. Yeah, and th- and there's no thief in the military. There's just some guy trying to get his stuff back. <laughs> Absolutely. So we've talked about how your time in the military affects the stories that you tell, but do you think it affects the stories you engage with as a reader or just a consumer of, of uh, entertainment? Well, you, I tell you one thing is that it's, I generally don't watch military shows anymore because I'll be watching it and just going, no, 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 the whole time. So when, when I am looking for something to entertain me, it's something I don't know anything about. And so I'll take, you know, th- that historical drama or, um, you know, just a comedy show. I mean, if I, I generally don't look for the same entertainment that I write. Well, that's how you expose yourself to new ideas and can bring in tropes that people wouldn't have expected too. So, yeah. uh, so transitioning from the writing side, let's look at things from a fan angle. So have you got any cool fan art or had anybody cosplay Standish or any of your other characters yet? Not yet. I've had a, a couple people do some fan art. I did get, a 3D printed statue of uh, one of my characters named Elias fighting with a Zaros drone. And we're, we're working on getting that statue, get, getting the, the, the files so that people can make their own 3D statue. And, I, and I'm, maybe by the end of this summer, I'll have that available to people. But that was pretty cool to get a, you know, I saw did. the pictures of that. That was glorious. Yeah. Yeah. I got I definitely want to get that back out to everybody so they can kind of tweak it how they like. Okay. Um, so has anyone asked for your autograph out in public away from regular, like book signings and such? Uh, it hasn't happened to me yet, but there, there was uh, a few weeks ago, I did a virtual <clears throat> career day, uh, for my, my son's third, third grade. And I talked to a bunch of fourth graders and it turns out one of the kids who I was talking to had actually read the Ember War. And I, my first thought was you're a little young, but I'm okay with that. So. <laughs> I, I, so I, I ended up passing a, a signed book off to him through my son. So it was kind of that was kind of neat. That's neat. Uh, I wonder which one of his parents was uh, was reading it first. Good question. Good question. <clears throat> so, have you ever spotted anyone out in the wilds reading your book? Not yet. Not yet. So I think that mostly applies to, to writers that have been around a little bit longer than us because back in the trad pub days, I imagine with so many people reading Kindles, they get a little creeped out if you're looking over their shoulder that much. That's true. That's true. And then plus 
one of the good things about reading a Kindle is that you can enjoy your, your Chuck Tingle stories, not and no one knows that you're reading Chuck Tingle. <laughs> right. Don't so Google is it true that. that people, yeah, don't Google is it, that. Is it true that that's your alter ego, Chuck Tingle? No. No. There's no, that I, rumor going around the author indie community, so I'm just checking. I would drive a much nicer car if I was Chuck Tingle. <laughs> so finally, what is the weirdest or funniest interaction you've had with a fan since you started writing? Uh, I tell you what's always the fun the funnest is I love the band Sabaton. I really love Sabaton. I got to go meet the band when they played in uh, Phoenix a, like, about a year and a half ago. And I, I work in little references to Sabaton songs and lyrics. And every so often I'll get a, a, a message on Facebook or whoever that says, Hey, hey man, do you like Sabaton? And then I, I send them the picture of me with the band, and they, they kind of figure it out. So, but yeah, that's that's fun. I like doing that. And because of you, the uh, the Galaxy's Edge fan club is also unofficially known as the Sabaton Appreciation Society. Excellent. We share the we share their and you get tagged in all of them. So I know. Like Brad Torgerson, he gets tagged on all of the Warren Officer jokes, and you get tagged on all the Sabaton posts. Yeah. I, and for those of you who don't know, Sabaton, they're a Swedish band that sings about military history. It's a real thing, and it's glorious, just so you know. It is, and uh, you should you should check it out. Just Google it. Uh, and you know what? I might even throw a link to that in the show notes to, to the Sabaton website. But uh, So this is the point in the interview, Richard, where you get to tell us everything you've written. So can you give us the highlights reel? Of what I've written? Yeah. Okay, so uh, The Ember War is... My main series, it's got a bunch of uh, sub-series, spin-offs, prequels, sidequels. The Ember War is a pretty big uh, big set of books. I mean, it takes up almost two whole shelves on my bookshelf uh, with the printed books. And that, that series is ongoing. The, the, kind of the third volume is the, the Abara Crusade. And that's going to be six books, and I'll have that, that finished this year. And then the very final Ember War book I plan on writing is... The Fall of Earth, which is the story of how the the the, the Zaros aliens uh, took uh, took over Earth, well, which which happens off the page in the first book. So, so that's that's the Ember War, and then also I've got the Exiled Fleet, which uh, narrated by the the very talented Mark Boyette, and that series also will finish up this year. I have uh, two or three more books to write there, and and that is. Um, and then I've also did some historical fiction. I did a, a novel about the Red Baron, the World War One fighter pilot, and um, and then the the older uh, military thrillers, the Eric Ritter uh, series, which is not going to have any more work on done on it. But the, some of the characters from Eric Ritter series are in the Ember War, so I you could you you could and so the Ember War excuse me the Eric Ritter stories are technically canon to the Ember War, but you don't have to read those to appreciate the Ember War. So that's nice. And then I've also got the the series with Dead Weber that's coming out in June and the tier, which will also be uh, finished this year. Nice. I actually have a signed copy of the Red Baron novel oh, yeah, yeah. that, uh, <laughs> that uh, I, I brought with me when we met in Vegas for the, uh, for the 2018, um, whatever the writers, I can't remember. We're drawing a blank on that convention, but the, the writers. 20 books. 20 books. Yeah. 20 books. There we go. That was a, that was a good one. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I almost wish you could put the Red Baron in, in the Ember Wars too. Tough. That'd be I, tough. Yeah. Well, you'd have to give him an upgraded plane, but or fighter. But I think you should do it. You should have like yeah. the Red Baron or something. It, but uh, I, I would, so 
I would tell you that uh, eventually I'm going to to write a, a Wargate series, uh, which uh, for if you if people who out there who read, oh gosh, what is it called? Not Ruins of the Galaxy. Um, Forgotten Ruins. What? Forgotten what? Ruins. Forgotten Ruins. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Jason Osbach and, and uh, Nick Cole put out the Forgotten Ruins. It's a great story. What happens if uh, Army Rangers go fight orcs? So, semi similar story in that same kind of vein will be: What if there's World War One, World War One fighter squadrons transported to a magical realm where they have to fight dragons and griffins, and the Red Baron will be affected there? So that will probably be out at the beginning of next year. Nice. So, will there be a Vickers gun? Because I do love me a Vickers. Gun. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. There'll be all kinds of machine guns. Outstanding. So while those all sound fascinating, today we're going to talk about Till Valhalla, uh, which if you're looking at the screen on audio, you can see the book cover. So I'm figuring you, you got that one already. So how did you come up with the, the premise for this um, subsect of the Ember Wars universe? Well, Till Valhalla, the, there was a lot of talk about the conflict between uh, China and what became known as the Atlantic Union, which for what, some reason ended up including Australia, even though it's nowhere near the Atlantic Ocean. But so that was a backstory of, you know, the, that you know, there was a world, there was a third world war and there was a simmering tension between uh, China and then the West, you know, uh, it was kind of, that was an undercurrent of why the, um, there was so much military preparedness when the Zaros did finally arrive. And that was all part of Markabara's secret plan that he had been putting in for, for decades to keep so, so that humanity wouldn't get wiped out when the Zaros arrived. So, but with Till Valhalla, I just, I really enjoyed the idea of, of more armor uh, fighting in Australia. And it was just, it was a good war story that I wanted to tell. And, and, it, and it, just, it just fit really nicely in Australia. And for whatever reason, I have the best Australian readers. They're just like, they're really amazing guys. And so when I, when I started to think about, well, I need to do this set this in Australia and do it right. And I had a good half dozen guys who were there to tell me, no, no, this is how they would say that. This is where this is, et cetera, et cetera. And so it was, I got a lot of help from, from Aussies to, to make that book happen. Nice. Nice. I uh, will be reading that. And speaking of the, uh, the community he talked about with the armor, if you're on the Facebook uh, there is an Ember War fan club that uh, one of his uh, Uber fans, not me, started. And uh, you can sometimes find the armor versus infantry jokes that are longstanding if you've had any experience with either branch, where they we relentlessly mock each other. So if you enjoy that kind of thing, you should definitely check it out. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Just, tread heads and dirty, nasty legs, they deserve everything that they get. <laughs> Were you, weren't, you, uh, weren't you a tanker? No, I was artillery, thank you. And then, oh, okay, okay. Yeah, then, then I got smart and went military intelligence. Moving on. So uh, before we dig in, can we take a moment to uh, to look at this glorious cover that's been staring at us since we started? So, what's the story of this fine piece of modern art that I definitely want on my man cave wall? It is um, the my artist. Uh, he did most of the covers for the the second and third, the kind of the. The two series that intertwine with themselves, the Terran Armor Corps series and the Terran Strike Marine series, and he he did most of that art. So when I told him, look, I I want this, you know, I just explained what I wanted, and boom, here it is. And he he just he did. Um, his name is Tom, not Tom. It was, I got an email from him this morning. 
his name is uh, Justin Adams from Varia Studios, V-A-R-I-A. So he, yeah, Justin does great art for me there. Okay. So uh, speaking of Man Cave Walls, is there any chance that people can get your glorious covers for posters? You know, you can get them uh, as metal posters over on uh, Displate, D-I-S-P-L-A-T-E. You can get those, and then I'm going to redo a store that actually has the art as proper, you know, paper covers or paper posters. So nice. And I will throw the Ember Wars uh, fan club link in the show notes as well. And uh, you said it was a disc store. Displate, D-I-S-P-L-A-T-E. They got a lot of uh, art, and it's it's posters that they're they're made of. They're printed on metal, so they will last you forever. And so it's not like you got to move and you got to roll it up. And then when you get to the new place that, you know, the, the poster's all, all wrinkled, you don't like it anymore. So that never happens with display. I will get the link from you when we are done and I'll throw all of that in the show notes. Cause I definitely can see spending some money on that. Um, so moving on to the book itself, what would your 32nd elevator pitch be for Till Valhalla? Till Valhalla is mechanized combat during the third world war set in australia and it is a story of a soldier who uh, was not ready to go to war but he gets thrown right into the fire and then he uh, he and his uh lance lance mate you know they, they join up with australian armor and they engage in a battle that that uh, turns the tide of the war in australia Okay, um, and so what, um, besides the fact that I'm totally jealous you beat me to using that as a title, uh, what do you think makes this novel special? Yeah, Till the Hall, what I like about it is that it's it's, it's a soldier who you know, understands, he, he really appreciates the brotherhood of battle. And Till Valhalla is, it's not necessarily a Viking thing, and now the way it's kind of used in modern day, um, let's see, how do, how do I put this? Is so Valhalla in Viking mythology is where the the honored dead who die in battle uh, go after they die, and you can't get into Valhalla by by accident. You're supposed to be there. The way you get into Valhalla, as far as the Vikings are concerned, is you had to die in battle. So if you say you know till Valhalla within the, the military, it's kind of a promise saying that I will do what I'm required to do. And I'm encouraging you to also do what you're supposed to do, so that we can go on together. So it's it's kind of a rallying cry, kind of a sort of a war cry, but it's also a promise that if you say, I, you know, I'll do this till Valhalla, which means I'm going to you know, be true to what I'm supposed to do to get to the reward that is promised. And at this point in military culture, especially when you've got a country that's been at war for so long with so many, I mean, at this point, kids of people I've served with in the early war or have deployed now and become combat veterans in the same damn war. Um, and I think, you know, people we served with were across the religious spectrums from, from paganism to Islam to no religion. And so I think that sort of became, you know, almost agnostic uh, nod to the warrior culture, uh, separate from its, its place in the uh, Norse pantheon of, of religion. Uh, so it's, it's definitely something that, that you hear in modern militaries. Uh, I, I guess it's the equivalent of what they used to say back in the horse cab days when they talk about Fiddler's Green. Yeah. It's yeah. just one of those things that's part of the culture. Yeah. Also, you know, as you say, I'll see you on the high ground also sort of means the same thing. 
Yeah. So how much hate mail did you get for beating all the other authors to using that as a title? Because I'm you're the first person. Off. You're the first person that's 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 voiced any consternation. <laughs> so, uh, what fantasy tropes do you, or 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 sci-fi tropes do you feel like you put into Till Valhalla? Uh, we we got the the, the taciturn badass, um, you know, your Master Chief kind of person. There's more than one of those in Till Valhalla, and um, <laughs> I actually worked in the secret volcano layer um, that you know you get with Austin Powers and. Uh, James Bond. There's actually a secret volcano layer in in Til Valhalla, and it makes perfect sense. So I've got that going for me. So. Outstanding. Um, and what about the subgenre? Obviously, this is military sci-fi, but do you think it fits into any other of the subgenres out there? Uh, military sci-fi, action adventure, war novels. It, it, it would be right. There. And then, of course, your mech combat. But I don't think mech is. It's you know, if it, readers, if you say it's a mech warrior novel, people are like, okay, I get it. But if you go on Amazon looking for mech combat, you're not going to find it. But, yeah. I think mech combat and fighter pilots separate from Space Fleet should definitely be their own thing. I agree. I agree. We, we should break that out a bit more. I wish Bezos would listen to me, but he stopped taking my calls. Jesus. <laughs> jerk. Uh, and so now, now let's talk about the story itself. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about your main characters? What makes him or her unique in the crowded field of science fiction? So the first are these oh. Go ahead. I say, and are these the same characters from your other series? A, a lot of the characters from the main Amber War series they have cameos here, but they're not uh, they're not a big part of the Tilva Hall story. It's all all new characters, and the main character in Tilva Hall is, is a young warrant officer named uh, Amos Roy, and he is he was the kind of he was in armor training, and he was almost done with armor training, and then they said, get in the get in the robot. You're going to go fight now. And then he gets shot over to uh, Australia and thrown right into battle before he's ready. And which is something that did happen to you know plenty of soldiers throughout the course of history. There was where you're like, you're almost ready. Go. I think there was during the Korean War, um, they, they packed up tanks that were on display at Fort Knox and sent them to Korea to fight because they weren't quite ready to, to deal with the armor advance that the North Koreans had going through the country. So I did kind of draw on history there of people not exactly ready to fight, getting thrown in to the, to the battle before they're ready. And Amos, or Roy, just Roy is known throughout the story. Uh, you know, one Roy has to fight, he, but the good news is he's in a, a, a suit of armor, which is about 14 feet tall and quite well armed. And so he, he gets thrown into the fight and he's one trying to, you know, work with the Australian soldiers that he ends up being around. And then later on, he gets separated from his armor, and he's uh, gets dismounted, and he has to run around without his armor, trying to survive. And I had some fun with uh, with those scenes. So, but also for Till Valhalla, the the characters who are there, they're going to be in the Fall of Earth. That that story, because in the Fall of Earth, uh, the main characters from the Ember War aren't aren't in it. So, uh, Till Valhalla is kind of a bridge from you know, <clears throat> Till Valhalla and the Fall of Earth are going to be the prequel story for the Ember War universe proper. Okay. So what about any secondary characters? Do you uh, do you have any that were particularly memorable from you other than the ones that were cameos? Well, uh, it was mostly just the, the, just the cameos because uh, for people who've read the Ember War, there's a character named Bailey. Uh, she's an Australian sniper. She's in the book, and she's, you know, she's actually the very first character we're introduced to. 
and then she kind of shows up and up and goes and, and then um mark Ibarra, he shows up and he's you know he is who he is throughout the the war series and then we got to see uh ken hale from he was one of the main characters in the ember war so having all these folks you know kind of pop up was good again and then also uh the the iron hearts from the ember war they also show up at the end of tilahala there's a certain lovable uh scottish sounding uh chief of uh the navy that was in the ember war series so do we get to see him he's not in this one no i'm sorry okay he was funny yeah all right so what about the bad guys that they're facing obviously no spoilers but um what what kind of bad guys can we? Well, in in this in this story, they're fighting the the communist Chinese, and the, the the Chinese in this story have their own armor, and so getting that armor on armor combat was uh, was a lot of fun. So, did you let uh, Heinlein inspire that? Were they on the bounce? Uh, not it's the armor in this story is not so much mobile infantry because they don't. You know, mobile infantry is you're almost a man sized suit. This. The armor in my uh, in, in within the Ember War, the, the the pilot is within a little cocoon, and he's attached, or he's connected to the suit through a an umbilical that plugs into the back of his head. So then the soldier within the armor, you know, he is the suit. And there's a lot of times you'll hear in the Ember War where, where someone who's armor they just say, "I am armor," and because they literally are the armor. And uh, so that that's kind of a, a a larger difference and then they're also within this fluid it's kind of a womb within the suit so it's, it's a bit different from Heinlein in that regard so how did you come up with the idea to do your armor that way well the, the way I came up with the armor is when I was writing the Ember War uh, the Zaros drones were were too tough for the Space Marines I had fighting them and I, I said okay well humanity is gonna need something to kind of you know level the playing field I thought, okay well if they had a bigger, you know, if they were able to carry bigger weapons, I could shoot munitions that would take out the drones a lot faster. Okay, that makes sense. So let's get this armor. And then, now I'm always, you know, I, I love science fiction and I, I enjoy like Robotech, love Robotech. I remember Avatar, the, the the suits that they had in there. And it always struck me that if you have to move controls to move something, you're at a disadvantage to someone that doesn't. So I thought to myself, well, okay, if these people who are in the mech suits can move the mech suit as easy and as fast as their body, then they're going to have an advantage to somebody who's sitting in there, you know, moving control sticks and pedals and flipping switches and whatnot. So I was like, okay, this seemed like an upgrade to the control system. If you're plugged directly into the suit and that way, raising this, the arm of the suit is, is just as easy and simple as raising your own arm right now. So I was like, okay, there we go. That's, I like I like that a lot. It seemed like a an upgrade, so that's how that came about. Okay, it was definitely different. I don't think I had seen anybody do that before. You also nice to be different in a good way. Um, I know I've seen umbilical fluid used um, in, in a similar way. Uh, Tim Taylor's Sleeping Legion. That's how they uh, did the drop pods, but he didn't incorporate right. it into armor. So it was definitely a nice nice touch. So. You get a pat on the back for that one. Oh, All right. So speaking of characters, so you do a lot of really mean things to your characters. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. if they met you in a dark alley, like how, how screwed are you? Uh, I don't think I'd be too screwed because they they, they kind of 
I, I imagine like who was it? There, there's some author somewhere who said like one of the things that a writer would be afraid of is ever actually meeting his characters. And I I, I, I did the mental exercise and like there's one character who I love, his name is Elias. And if I ever like somehow met him, we'd probably just sit down next to each other, and not say anything. Because I knew what had to happen, he knew what had to happen. It would it would be okay. Okay, so uh, finally, um, what about the universe? In miniseries, the worlds where the stories is told is as much a character as the protagonist and the antagonist. So can you give us a hint of what we can expect from the pre-Zaros um, Ember Wars universe? It is, it, it's the Cold War that is hot, but not hot enough for, for nuclear war yet. And what's one of the worries is that, you know, they're, they're fighting this war on the edge of going nuclear and they don't want it to go nuclear. So how do you how do you win without you know upping the stakes to the point of no return? So that's uh, that's that's one thing about about Tilvahala. And you know for the Cold War, you didn't have the U.S. and Russia fighting itself directly. But there are a lot of times it came pretty close. But in, in this one, you had you know you have China invading Australia, the Australians fighting back, and then now the Atlantic Union finally sends in people to uh, to fight in this war. And now it's, it's it, it, the stakes are almost to the point where the missiles start flying, and that's one of the the, the parts of the story is how do you not have the missile the empty the silos go empty? Okay, that's a lot to think about. So uh, we talked about a little bit about you had the iconic Luke Daniels as your narrator for the Ember Wars universe. So how do you think the tone and tenor of your series would have changed if someone else had narrated it? I think Luke brings a certain something to the books he, he picks to bring to life. So, yeah, Luke is an amazing performer. And if you've ever watched him um, live on Facebook, he doesn't just sit there reading. He acts out with his body while he's speaking. So that's, that's a, you know, it's a good deal more of a, of a performance than you would think was you get from a, from a narrator. But Luke definitely goes above and beyond. And I don't, you know, you couldn't, you can't, Right now, you can't separate Luke Daniels from the Ember War, or rather, you can't separate the Ember War from Luke Daniels, and I'm fine with that. So, and he is—he's in the booth right now recording um, the the next the uh, next Ember War publisher pack that has Ember's uh, Ashes Fall and Steel Sworn in it. So, can you tell us a little bit about those um, publishers packs? Because I know you're one of the few authors who continues to write short content that you generally will give away to your newsletter and then you bundle and you get audiobook narrated. So is that something that actually, you know, you do because it makes you a little bit of scratch enough to cover it or is that purely fan service? It's mostly fan service because it's the, the longer the, the audiobooks, uh, the more credit worthy it is. So instead of send, you know, asking your reader, here's a eight hour book for your credit versus here's a 15 hour book for your credit. And people generally appreciate that they're getting more bang for their, for their, their monthly credit. So people appreciate that. I'm glad people are happy with that. And then also when it comes to um, bundling the short stories into audio, I got to appreciate that with, with Podium uh, because they, they're the ones who said, yeah, well, give us the short stories. We'll have Luke record it. And then it will just be bonus content for, for listeners. So it's always nice to give more value to people. So do you think at any point in time, you're going to bundle the, uh, the short stories into a paperback type collection for those that are um, dead tree enthusiasts? Probably. I mean, that's probably something I could do pretty soon. Just have the Ember War short story and little anthology. That is something, yeah. 
down the line. Okay. Obviously, there's only so many hours in a day and you've got lots of books to write because people probably hound you for more. Um, so Till Valhalla is clearly part of a larger universe. We know because you've told us and Amazon says, and if Amazon says it must be true. So, but is this story done for chief Amos and the other characters? Um, no, um, the, the characters in Till Valhalla will, will be in, uh, the fall of earth. We'll see them again. Okay. Um, and, um, Without any spoilers, will uh, will we see Chief Amos in uh, some of the other potential series? I know you've mentioned in other podcasts that uh, potentially Josh Hayes would be continuing his characters. So there's room for, for some of these crossover well, type stuff? Or? I, I tell you what, everyone who's in The Fall of Earth, that's the last book they're going to be in. So um, okay, it's that's just how the story works. So that's going to it's going to be a real interesting story when I read that. But um but then uh, we also, but now Mark Ibarra, he'll he'll be in the Fall of Earth, and he's he's in almost every other Ember War since Ember War book since then. So. so, what was your inspiration for Mark Ibarra? Because he's a definitely a unique character. Yeah, it, it came down to um, Elon Musk was a big part of that, and was with Mark Ibarra, I needed an inventor who was going to change how technology worked in the world. And the reason that was happening was because he knew the Zaros were coming and he knew Earth had to be at a certain level of readiness to, to survive. So, so Mark Ibarra, after he got, was contacted by uh, this alien probe that warned him about the Zaros, he had to, you know, he had a decades long plan that he had to put forward so that Earth and humanity could survive. So, and then the more I think about Elon Musk, I'm like, what does he know? Does, does he have a, a hint? Because Elon Musk, he's dead set on getting us to Mars as fast as possible. And I'm like, does, does he know about a comet coming? Can he share this with us? I'm not sure. So it's. Uh, so you're not saying it's aliens, but you're not, not saying that Elon Musk knows aliens. I don't, I don't know. Sometimes I think Elon knows something that the rest of the world doesn't. And one thing I, I enjoy list, uh, studying and learning about is um, you know, ancient cultures. And there is the the Younger Dryas event, which likely was the inspiration for Noah's flood and the flood that's in almost every other culture around the world. And the more you, I've looked into this, and the more people, other people have done all this research, is that there's almost a cyclical nature of disasters that hit Earth every nine to eleven thousand years ago. So, and I look at what you know. Okay, when was the last one? It was about eleven thousand years ago. And I'm thinking, did does Elon did he do the math? And that's why he's trying to get us to Mars so fast. But it's just, you know, rapid speculation. It might be a good idea for a book series someday. I don't know. We'll see. All right. So we know that every literary universe, or at least the good ones, have their own internally consistent rules of science and technology. So what sort of tech can we expect from these books for people who lived under a rock and haven't read the Ember Wars? So when it comes to, to Ember War tech. Uh, for by and large, there's no faster than the light travel. It's all uh, wormholes and wormhole gates and wormhole projections. And then uh, lots of, I, I'm a big fan of Gauss weaponry. And so we see lots of that in rail guns. And of course, you got your mech combat and then you have your um, power armor. There's a good, there's a fair amount of power armor within all this. So it's uh, nothing. Nothing too far beyond the what of what the bounds of what's possible now. So, okay. Um, so, of all of the tech that you invented in this universe, what would you want for your own daily use? Oh, oh boy. Uh, 
my first thought was like, well, I'd love to have a, a mech suit, but then I'd be walking around with a plug in the back of my head and people think I'm into some sort of weird body art. But um, <laughs> having my own suit of armor, I think would be nice, especially when I have her out to deal with my HOA and just go to the meeting in that. And, but then also, you know, um, a ship like the Breitenfeld, which is a strike carrier that's got, you know, the railgun cannons and it's, there is very much like the, the tiger's claw from War wing commander, which I loved when I was growing up. So if, if we had a, we had a Breitenfeld uh, in order to orbit, I'd, I'd love that. So. so what made you pick the, uh, the motto for the Breitenfeld that you did that you went with, with the German? Well, got to go back to, um, Sabaton. So when I was writing the Ember War and I knew I named ship and I was debating what was I going to name the ship? Is it going to be the Yorktown? Is it going to be something well known? And then I was listening to Sabaton and the song Gotten It Duns came up, which is about the Battle of Breitenfeld in 16, 1619, I want to say. I double check on that. But, and it, this is a historical battle where you had uh, the Swedes and their German allies were fighting other Germans. And like the battle cry of the day was Gott mit uns, which is German for God is with us. And so I'm listening to this song. I thought Breitenfeld, that sounds cool. No one else has got a ship out there named the Breitenfeld. So, I, you know, I went with the Breitenfeld to kind of set my work apart and sort of stand out. It's like, this is, here's the history I'm drawing from. So it's not just another ship name that everyone's heard before. So if you went with Yorktown, people, you know, they have historical associations the Breidenfeld, especially for you know an american audience that may not that may not have a lot of knowledge of german and swedish history for some reason um so they hear the Breidenfeld, it's like oh this is new and interesting and then you know during the course of the book they tell you you know i you know i have the the, the book inform the reader about the Breidenfeld, the, the battle that happened got the nuns so and then a lot of ships within the the ember warriors they all have mottos to them and amazingly, all the mottos somehow reflect black back on a Sabaton song, one way or another. <laughs> and that worked out. <laughs> so it's mystery upon mystery. Yeah, like um, I have a ship named the Normandy, and their uh, their motto is uh, Prima Victoria. And if you know Sabaton, it's, it's like one of the first big songs was about the Battle of Normandy. So you've talked about that this book does the Till Valhalla does not have aliens in, in this book, but obviously the larger universe does. So what can you tell us about the aliens in your, your world? There are many and varied and sometimes they're humanity's friends and sometimes they're not. Uh, we have the, the main antagonist through the first series is the Zaros. And then, but then also humanity picks up some, uh, some friends along the way who the, 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 the Dotari or the Dotok as they're first introduced. And then there's uh, not so nice aliens, with particularly with the the Toth, who are um, a lizard, a reptilian-like species, and the Overlords survive as brains in the jar, and uh, they get their sustenance from absorbing the the neural energy of other living beings. And those are they, they, they the Toth turn into great villains, so I'm kind of happy with them. I did enjoy them. Um, so when you create these aliens. How did you do it? Did you let nature inspire you, generally speaking, or do you just create it completely out of your imagination? It's so with the the Zaros, I wanted something that was that was not the drones themselves were not going to have any sort of compassion. They couldn't be reasoned with. They were just like a force of nature. So that's how the Zaros drones react. And then later on, we 
were introduced to the intelligences that control the drones and they become, you know, they have their own uh, reasons for being. With the Toth, I, I had an idea for a story and I just like within my old notes, it was free the farm. And the, the, the story, the idea for that was that there was a planet that had a whole bunch of humans on it and these humans were kept as cattle, but they, they didn't know they were being kept as cattle. You know, they had a religious background where they were called, you know, called to God and then, you know, these pilgrims end up getting eaten or you know experimented on so and you know they they they, this community never knew that they were being used like this way and so i had this idea for a story where a special forces team goes and has to you know bust these people out before they before they're all sacrificed so to speak and that's a story idea became um gardens of nibiru which within the emperor universe and but the uh, the bad guys for that save the farm story I had in my old notes were the Toth, and then as I was writing uh, the second book in the Emperor series, Ruins of Othalus, I, I had my you know I was in the outline phase and I had my strike marines running around this planet, dodging the drones, and I thought this is this needs more, I, I need more action, I need, and so I thought well, how do I get more action and more drama out of the situation? Well, let's add in a new bad guy, so. Then I, during the course of the writing, the ruins of Office, the Toth show up, and they are their own sort of bad guy, and they have their own uh, uh, neat, you know, desires and what they're doing on this planet, and and then that and then Toth became kind of a secondary antagonist through the Ember War series, and part of the Ember War series is that Earth is you know discovering this wider galaxy, and they find some friends and they find lots of enemies in the process. And the Tother, another enemy that came up during the course of exploring exploring the galaxy. So, without any spoilers, this is just me asking because you know I'm a nerd. Um, do you ever plan on going back to the planet the the Garden of Nibiru um, is set on and solving those mysteries? Uh, you know, Nibiru. Um, that what happened on that planet got got finished, and but going back to how those how, how those first two humans got put on the planet and i i don't think so it's uh because i think it's everyone who's read the ember war they kind of they know the outline they know the final uh you know they, they know the story so there's not a lot of tension for me when it comes to prequels you have whenever i try to tell one there should be there has to be tension the way you do that is you have to have a completely different story that people don't know the answer to so if i put like let's say I did, I wrote Till Valhalla and I had the Ironhearts being um, the main armor, the main characters. It would lack a lot of a lot of tension because everyone knows that the Ironhearts are in the next couple books. So when these guys are, if the Ironhearts are getting shot at in Till Valhalla, the reader knows they're going to be fine. So I had different characters for that. So whenever I think about doing a prequel, it's either I'm going to tell the story that people don't know, or I'm going to tell a story that people do know, but with people. You know, where there's, enough, there's enough possibility that these characters could be harmed or killed, or you know, uh, they're actually in peril. So, but if I did like a prequel story of how those humans got put on that Toth world, you kind of know. So, I don't, I, I don't think I would go for that. Okay, so you also addressed in the um, universe at large, and we're going to dance around this: the concept of cloning as a way to uh, quickly generate bodies when when 
you need soldiers and, and just to repopulate. You're not the only universe to do it. But uh, were, were you trying to just quickly get bodies? Were you trying to send a larger message about, you know, what is humanity? What was your, your thinking when you were writing that? Yes to both. Uh, yes to, because when I was writing the Ember War and I got to the end and it was only, and I realized you know, there's only a couple hundred thousand people left and the Zaros are going to come back. These couple hundred thousand aren't going to cut it. So, like, And so I realized that was a, a, a block, a roadblock for the whole series. So during the first book, I set it up so that, hey, no, humanity's got an idea to bring, to have, you know, adults trained, you know, trained and battle-ready adults coming into the, the force pretty quick. And, you know, the, the how that happens, and I call them procedurals, is where you have, you you sperm and ovum get combined to, to a baby, and then throughout the course of about nine days, that baby grows to be a few, a full adult. And then during that whole time, um, that person's, is having memories put into their mind and you put into their brain. So then that way, if you say, we need fighter pilots, well, you, then, okay, you go to the, the tanks and then nine days later, you have fighter pilots coming out who are trained. And, but they're procedural because there's going to be just enough difference in all of their memories that they all not thinking the same. They're going to have, you know, they're all going to go through the same training and they're going to have this, the same sort of skill set. but there's going to be a lot of variations into how they act. So they're all, unique individual people and during the course of the ember war the question is do they have souls are they even real people and that's an argument that's you know continues throughout several series and then the one other thing is that uh, the people who make these procedurals uh sometimes they put in memories and uh, commands a little order 66 like uh and that is a big source of of trust issues for these people, when somebody like uh, the Ibarras can just go and say certain code words to a procedural, and then all of a sudden the procedural is 100% on their side, I don't understand it. And that's uh, you know one of the worries and problems with this sort of technology. Now, when it comes to actually being clones, I wouldn't call them clones because they're not technically clones. So, but no, just procedurals. And then I you know I kind of like the idea that people can not like procedurals. And, and also like them, it gets people discussing, well, what, are they really human? Should we really be doing this where people come out of, of these tubes with a certain mindset and a certain uh, loyalties and vulnerabilities? So that's, uh, you know, I, I enjoy having that discussion within the series. So when you wrote those characters, had you read Hugh Howie's uh, Long Way Home? I had not, no. That's one of the things he addresses is to colonize distant worlds. Uh, they they basically sent the the, the baby batter and then they gestated in, in a artificial womb and basically grew the humans on site for the planets. So that way, because obviously, you know, if you don't have FTL, sometimes you're talking generations to get to various locations. So thought that was uh, that was interesting. It's uh, some of those things about sci-fi that make it fun, that nature versus nurture and, and what exactly humanity is. And where those lines are, it's it's always fun. Yeah, yeah. That's one of the, you so, can't really ask that. You can't do that in a fantasy. You can't do that in military thrillers either. No, you cannot. Well, you could, but then you're crossing over genre boundaries. And is it still yeah. really just a military thriller? Then hard to say. So um, clearly, this uh, interview is winding down. Uh, but before we wrap this up, was there anything about Till Valhalla that we didn't ask that you wanted to tell us? The Till Valhalla, you can find it in a brand new um, 
anthology put out by uh, the great, wonderful, and very talented Kevin J. Anderson. And we will have a link to pick up that bundle along with many other uh, great military sci-fi books. I, and JR, I do believe you have a book in there as well. I do. And so if you go to the storybundle.com on the 19th, which is, will have already be live when you listen to this, uh, the definition for the story bundle from their own website is, is a way for people who love to read uh, to discover quality indie books written by indie authors. You know how it's always hard to find something good to read? Story Bundle helps you solve that. They take a handful of books, anywhere from six to nine, and group them together as a bundle, generally around a certain theme, in this case, military sci-fi. And then you, the reader, can take a look at the titles they've chosen and decide how much you'd like to pay. There's generally a uh, minimum, but you can pay as much over that. You can set the percentage the author gets versus the charity, and uh, you basically get to drive that ship uh, as the consumer, which is the way it really should be in a free market. So... It's, it's a good deal. The link will be in the show note, and there are a lot of good authors, and you have been listening to those interviews for last week. So, all right, Richard, how can uh, listeners find you on the wild uh, internet? One of the best places is just go on Facebook and type in Richard Fox author, and you can uh, find me there. And I, I on my Facebook page, I'll be, I post uh, book covers before they're out, and I uh, put out the, almost anything about my writing. And so follow me on Facebook is a great place. And then also you can sign up for my newsletter, get a free book, get and then also get a bunch of free stories written by me and uh, JR. If you'd be so kind to put that link in the show notes as well, which I'm sure you will. I think you already have it. And so really, yeah, Facebook and then signing up for my mailing list. And then you will not miss a thing from me. Outstanding. I'll make a point to specifically put your uh, your sublink in your your website for the for the newsletter. And you can find us, dear listener, on our website at anchor.fm backslash blasters tech and tech blades anchor.fm backslash blasters tech and tech blades you can follow us on twitter at sf underscore fantasy underscore show sierra foxtrot underscore fantasy underscore show you can email us at blasters and blades podcast at gmail.com we have the facebook group uh blasters and blades podcast facebook.com backslash blasters and blades podcast where all the crazy shenanigans happen and our inappropriate memes are shared um we can you can support the show on anchor.fm with a subscription service much like patreon if you're familiar with that or a one-time donation at buymeacoffee.com backslash author jr hanley uh and be sure to put in the comment section that this is for the podcast and we'll we'll make sure we keep uh nick garber and, and seska uh lubricated and intoxicated and i will be your sober driver and we can have all the fun so um thank you for spending some of your precious time with us for Nick Garber and Doc Seska. I'm JR Hanley, and this was the Blasters and Blades podcast. We'll be back next week at the same time where we'll indulge our love of nerd culture, cheesy jokes, and all things that go boom. <laughs> <laughs>